Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. You're listening to Imaginary Worlds, a show about how we create them and why we suspend our disbelief. I'm Eric Malinsky. Ever since COVID-19 spread around the world, one of the few silver linings is that emissions are down dramatically. I mean, you've probably seen the before and after satellite pictures. Although now people are just taking pictures of their own cities where the sky used to be brown with smog and now it's bright blue. And I've been wondering, when we finally emerge from this crisis, will climate change be a priority again anytime soon? And how much of an impact can we have collectively, as individuals, if governments are not willing to step up? And that brings me back to science fiction, specifically a new environmental sci-fi genre called solar punk, which imagines a future where renewable energy is the prime motive for designing anything, big or small. Now, solar punk should not be confused with steampunk. Steampunk imagines what if modern gadgets were made with late 19th or early 20th century technology? Like there are steampunk computers that are made out of old typewriters and gramophones. And that is a decorative object. You would not actually want to use that computer. But imagining a solar punk computer and using it in real life is the goal of the movement. Although steampunk and solar punk are similar in that they're both genres, like there can be solar punk fiction, solar punk artwork, solar punk fashion. I even saw a solar punk card game. In 2014, the writer Adam Flynn wrote a solar punk manifesto for Arizona State University's Center for Science and the Imagination. He says it all began when he was talking with friends. I was having a conversation with um, a coworker of mine who is also a young adult uh, fiction novelist. Um, and she had just published you know, her first novel and was thinking about like, okay, what are the genres that are going to be in next? Because at that point there was sort of a big upsurge of this sort of young dystopia as a genre. She said, solar punk. And we we're like, oh, that's, that's a word. That's a word to think about. Adam thought that his friend had invented the word solar punk, but they later discovered other people had the same idea around the same time, which shows that solar punk is growing organically out of the zeitgeist. In fact, my listeners have been suggesting solar punk for a while, but at first I wasn't sure what to say about it because the genre is so new. Then I put the hashtag solar punk into Tumblr to see what images came up, and that's when I got it. 
I mean, the word punk sounds gritty, but the high-concept futuristic paintings that I saw were so refreshing and warm. Imagine architecture with impossible curves and a lot of glass and greenery everywhere. Like the number of trees that you'd expect to see in a park coming out of windows, balconies, roofs, or elevated walkways. One picture had a human-designed forest contained in a series of skyscraper cones in the middle of an urban grid. I also came across a Nigerian artist who had created a series of images of a shantytown that had been transformed into a group of futuristic, solar-powered, circular habitats that were connected by elevated walkways. The image was so striking, it took me a minute to realize it was a proposal for a series of structures that did not exist yet. Serena Ulibari is a fiction writer who edits a solar punk anthology called Glass and Gardens. Most of the technology that's used in solar punk artwork and fiction already exists. But what we do is we take it and shine it up, look at, make it look real pretty, and uh, then it makes it more appealing. And it was the architecture that first captured her imagination, although at the time she was actually at a writing workshop. At the time, I had been writing a lot of uh, dystopian stuff. And I, I've always had environmental concerns and I was trying to, you know, work that into my fiction, but I was doing it from that grim, dark dystopian aspect. And, you know, it was exhausting and it, I wasn't doing it very well. Like, you know, you, there's a lot of uh, cliches in, in that and there's, there's just so much of it done. So anyway, one of my classmates was from Singapore. He was describing the, the biodomes of Singapore and, you know, this building that's shaped like a lotus that like opens up, uh, you know, with the, these solar panel, solar panels that look like a lotus leaf and stuff like that. And I was just like, what are you talking about? This sounds amazing. And I, I like pulled up some pictures on my phone. I was like, that's what you're talking about? And he said, yeah, that's my hood. We live in the future. And I was like, what? The future can look like that? Again, Adam Flynn. There's a lot of this idea of like, can we make infrastructure beautiful? Can we live in harmony with the things around us? There's a lot of lush green spaces. There's a, a lot of a lot of organic forms, uh, a lot of inspiration from Art Nouveau and uh, sort of the arts and crafts movement, William Morris. So it's not your sort of uh, stark white iPhone modernism. You know, it's interesting. You when you mentioned Art Nouveau, yeah, I did notice that, and I was thinking, oh, that's pretty, but I didn't really think about it in terms of it's it's much more pur purposeful. It sounds like because it it feels organic. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting that it's different from an iPhone, which is sleek and probably has more of a corporate feel to yeah. it now, that kind of design. There is a lot of solar punk being one of the sort of one of the reactions against uh, sort of modernism and especially the kind of corporate slick modernist design that you might see in terms of you know, a lot of visual clarity and grids and you know sleek lines but it not being something that you know you can't fix an iphone they have deliberately engineered it to make it harder for you to repair it yourself and it's also been engineered such that you kind of have to replace it every couple years and then you start asking questions of well okay and what are the rare earth elements in this phone and where did they come from and what happens to that phone once it's discarded exactly exactly 
So the question of like, all right, well, what would a a solar punk phone be like? It's not just what it looks like, but where it exists within an entire sort of chain of production and use and social meaning. And what would a solar punk video game be like? Keisha Howard is trying to figure that out. She works in the video game industry, and she gave a TEDx talk on solar punk. When I first was writing my speech for the solar punk TEDx, my little brother, he asked me, he was like, what's so punk about solar punk? Because everything you're saying about it is nice. Did you ever come up with like a really concise answer to be like, you know what? I thought about it. And here's the answer. Yeah, the, the 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 punk part is the sacrifices we would make now and the people who wouldn't want to make those sacrifices. Like if we all did DIY, if we all like, you know, band together to to do this, to have this solar punk future, not everybody is going to be into that. There are whole economies that need the production of things that harm our environment, right? So to change that would be very difficult and that would be sort of kind of a fight. It would be bucking the current system of capitalism that we have now. And that's kind of punk, right? In some ways, solar punk reminds me of Earth Day. This month is the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. It is a very established global holiday. But like solar punk, when Earth Day began 50 years ago, it was an experiment started by a few people that hoped it would catch on. It's creating something new, right? Like Earth Day was a new holiday. It tried to fill a need that people saw around like, we need to celebrate and and really have a day of, of reckoning with our relationship with this planet. We are entering a very uncertain and scary time in our history. And solar punk is a ray of hope. And I could use a ray of hope right now. So we're going to look into what's motivating the writers and artists behind this movement and why they're still optimistic about the future. That is after the break. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Now, to understand solar punk, we need to know what it's reacting against, which is primarily cyberpunk. Cyberpunk was pioneered by writers like William Gibson in the 1980s, where they imagined a future where giant corporations use media to connect people through cyberspace, where hackers can live virtual lives, merging their bodies with technology in a way that feels punk and DIY, but everything they're using to build their sense of identity is controlled and surveilled by giant tech corporations. So yeah, we are living in the future that they imagined 
based on the trends that they saw 30 and 40 years ago. Cyberpunk also became the dominant sci-fi aesthetic, from The Matrix to Ready Player One, although the pop culture shorthand for cyberpunk is Blade Runner. Not the plot of the movie, but the visuals. In fact, most of the people that I talked with about Solarpunk explicitly said they do not want to live in a Blade Runner future, which is ironic because the 1982 movie Blade Runner took place in the year 2019. Now, Adam Flynn still likes cyberpunk novels. To the credit of the initial wave of cyberpunk authors, like they were writing this as a, you know, a reflection and an interrogation of what was going on in the world around them and in many ways like attempting to sort of warn people. The problem is if dystopia is really cool and people have robot arms, then like that's going to infect people's dreams and you end up building that future anyway. And Keisha Howard does not think that cyberpunk and solarpunk are mutually exclusive. In fact, if we are living in the world that cyberpunk authors imagined, then she thinks we need to decide if we want to keep going in that direction or live in a different future of our own design. I mean, for her, solarpunk is more of a reaction against a different genre of science fiction where humans terraform Mars or figure out how to live on other planets because the Earth is a lost cause. That bothers her. Because all of us can't go move to Mars anytime soon, no matter what Elon Musk saying. Like, we not all moving to Mars. I don't want to move to Mars even if I could. But like, if we can just kind of pivot towards something where we're still living on Earth instead of like having to leave it because we've destroyed it with pollution or atomic bombs or whatever dystopic stories that we've been fed. Like, that would be kind of cool, you know? And since Solarpunk is so new, Keisha feels like she could get in on the ground floor. Like, when you when you look at a cyberpunk story, right, it's like a thing if the lead is a woman or a person of color or just a non-white male and solar punk is so new and so fresh like you really can be anything in this particular sort of speculative fiction so it's nice it's just like wow i don't have to worry about like telling a story and 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 hinging so much of it on like my perspective as a woman or a person of color i can just hinge on it as a human trying to live in harmony with the earth. One of the things that I find fascinating about solar punk is that it's the reversal of what I think of as the usual chain of events in science fiction, where a writer imagines current trends going into the future with dangerous consequences. Or as the writer Frederick Pohl once famously said, a good science fiction story should be able to predict not the automobile, but the traffic jam. Solar punk does the opposite. It encourages writers and artists to imagine a specific type of future in the hopes that their work will inspire engineers to create that future. And Adam says there is precedence for this. In fact, he was inspired by one of the pioneers of cyberpunk, Neil Stevenson. There was uh, an essay by Neil Stevenson about uh, sort of the idea of a hieroglyph and a science fiction as a hieroglyph, right? This sort of universal language that can be used across disciplines when you're building something really big or ambitious. The idea being that 
moonshots were easier in the 1960s because everybody had read, you know, Ray Bradbury and Isaac Asimov and all of these sort of like golden age sci-fi writers. And so they could say, oh, you know, it's sort of like uh, X or Y or Z. Everybody that I talked with said they were still waiting for their big cultural moment, like a Hollywood solar punk movie or a TV show that captures people's imagination. In the meantime, they've been retroactively classifying old novels as having been solar punk, even if the writers aren't alive anymore. Now, there have been solar punk novels that have come out in the last several years, and there are more on the way from major writers like Becky Chambers, who wrote the Wayfarer series. But novels can take years to write. A lot of the momentum right now is really in short story anthologies, because those writers can react more quickly to the zeitgeist. Scott and Jane Noel are a married couple who run a solar punk anthology magazine called Dreamforge. You know, I'm at this point 62 years old, so I grew up with, you know, science fiction being, hey, we're going to have these, you know, marvelous inventions and it's spaceships. The Star and Trek future. The Star Trek future, yes. <laughs> you know, that's, that's kind of what we're going for. In fact, they think that Star Trek is a perfect example of what solar punk is trying to accomplish. Because Star Trek inspired a lot of people to become scientists and engineers when they grew up. And the things that they invented look a lot like what we saw in Star Trek. From flip phones to voice-activated AI to tablet computers. And I think like Star Trek is the future that we all want to get to. And it feels to me like solar punk is kind of the in-between of how we get there. Like when we're talking about the social justice and the community working together, it's like it's Star Trek's world. They already experienced that. They already got there. And solar punk feels like the step we need to take from here to Star Trek. The submission process for their magazine, Dreamforge, is fairly rigorous. They've gotten over 1,500 submissions. And those stories are evaluated by readers around the world. We have a, a lot of readers and, and we really have that. They understand the vision of what we're trying to do. So these readers really say it's not a Dreamforge story. That's that's a comment you'll see them put into the, the thing. It's a great story. It does this, it does this well, but it's not a Dreamforge story. We have had stories where they showed climate change, for instance, from um, the point of view of, of really total devastation. Uh, at, at the end, you know, there's this this little tiny bit of a feel of, oh, some fish survived and, you know, it looks like life might be returning to the Mediterranean or something. And it's, and then I, you know, was even talking to the authors and it's like, well, we thought that was a bit hopeful, a bit too hopeful. We thought we were being overly optimistic. And it's like, no, <laughs> that's not, that's not overly optimistic. Optimistic is that there's a point where, you know, people basically reverse damage and, um, you know, change, change things for the better. And one of the stories that we have that was from Italy and he was a climate scientist at some point. He's a writer and translator now. And his was of showing the devastation of climate change. But from the point of view of a time traveler who's coming back to our time, well, it's, it's our future, actually. He's coming back to the time when, when the, the climate devastation is really terrible. And he's trying to find a way to tell them without saying, hey, I'm a time traveler from the future. But he's trying to find a way to, to say to one of the, the women he's talking to in the story is, you'll get past this. That story she mentioned is called Sapiens by the writer Davida Mana. And here's the actress Vanessa Bello reading that scene, where the time traveler from the future tries to reassure a woman from our era 
that we're going to get through this climate catastrophe. The story is told from the time traveler's point of view. I looked at her. If you know what's wrong, why don't you change it? She turned away and looked at the sea, black water under black sky, the lights of the drones like distant fireflies. She shrugged. You can't change people, she said. 300,000 years of history disprove that belief. Change is the only constant in the history of our species. We should embrace it, not try and stave it off. She clicked her tongue and shook her head. You have too much faith in humanity, she said. What if it's you that do not have enough? We are homo sapiens, not politicians. She chuckled, and her cheeks acquired a hint of color. My friend, she said, nodding, would not like such talk. I looked at the guy, surrounded by a bunch of hanger-ons. Some politico I was supposed to know. I would have liked to tell her we had lost the memory of such individuals, that she should not waste her time. What if he doesn't? I asked. She stared at me. There was no longer fear there, but curiosity. Are you preaching anarchy? She asked with an impish smile. I am not a preacher, I replied. And I'd rather preach survival if I were. You can't change people, she repeated. It was the core of her belief, her faith. People can change, I replied. That's the spirit? I turned. My friend's companion was standing too close, smiling the aggressive smile of one who's in control. He gestured toward the darkness, where the drone lights illuminated a chunk of the Gutzloff signal tower, like a broken finger pointed at the sky, rising from the waters. We will rebuild the Bund better than before, he said. He squinted at me. Are you an engineer? A designer? I shook my head. A historian. He snorted. Fascinating subject. Useless, but fascinating. Another wave crashed at the base of the tower. The structure creaked. People screamed. But I knew it would be all right. We're looking for stories that basically show us people overcoming obstacles. And that's that's it. We're not a Pollyanna-ish magazine. It's not like um, you read these stories and it's like, oh, everything worked out really happy and everybody was fine. And, you know, look how bright things are. You know, we want to be realistic about showing dire challenges. But the one thing that we always want is to show that people and communities can overcome those challenges, that you don't wait for government to save you. You don't, you know, wait for the hero. I would rather see a story about uh, a couple people or a community um, solving a problem than, oh, there's the guy or girl who, you know, goes and slays the the, the evil and, and we're all fine now. It's like everybody works together to make a better future. That is a good description of the story that Serena Ulibari had published in the magazine. My story in Dreamforge called The Spiral Ranch is um, set in a futuristic Austin, Texas, uh, where there is a skyscraper with a spiral pasture um, that they raise dwarf cows in this skyscraper in the middle of the city. She was actually inspired by a work of conceptual architecture that she saw in a design contest. The image was of an open-air spiral farm slash skyscraper. And, you know, I didn't know if it was realistic, but I thought I could tell a story in this in this setting. So I started thinking, who works there? You know, who who runs this place? And then the characters, uh, the idea kind of grew from that. 
In her story, two friends who work at the Spiral Ranch discover that their cattle are being stolen by rustlers using giant drones to snatch the cows away. Piper tore down the staircase four steps at a time, slamming the doors open at each pasture as she passed them. She had no plan. She just knew this was her herd, and she would be damned if she let them be carted off into the forest. All the pastures that were supposed to have cattle were fine until pasture three. It was empty, and the gate leading down to pasture two hung off its hinges. Eventually, Piper finds the cattle rustlers and tries to stall them before they can get away. Why are you doing this? Cows ain't supposed to live in skyscrapers. We just want to bring agriculture back to the land, back to the people, by stealing our cattle. The way I see it, we're liberating them, Max said. You know, we could use someone with your expertise. Pretty impressive the way you hack that drone. You could join us. He stepped backward. She was the one with her back to the wall, and he had only a few steps to make it to the trailer. Could she actually pull the trigger if he made a run for it? Piper had no way to know if any help was on the way. We want the same thing you want, Max said. No, she told him. The Spiral Ranch may not be the best way, but we can't go back to the old ways either. The land has to heal, regrow. He took another step back. That's just propaganda and you know it. She stepped forward, closing the distance between them. Someday, maybe people would spread out, start living horizontally again instead of vertically. But right now was a fallow time. Let's go, man! Mullet yelled. He herded the last two cows into the trailer and latched the gate. I can't let you take our cattle, Piper said. Well, then I'd say we are at an impasse. Mac cocked the gun. The premise of that story sounds futuristic, but as Serena likes to point out, most of the technology in solar punk is available now if we want to use it. And it doesn't have to be something huge like a skyscraper farm. We can be solar punk in the smaller choices we make. In fact, she thinks the current crisis is already changing people's behavior. But you know what? I've seen a fair number of people talk about starting like backyard gardens or, you know, showing their little windowsill, you know, seedlings and such. And they're doing it as a reaction you know, to this and realizing that uh, they can't just go to the store all the time. So I think that's that's something that a little solar punk that's, that's coming out of this as well. As Keisha Howard has been sheltering in place, she's also been thinking about how she can make her life more DIY. Right now, one of the things I decided to do this year is not just to make some of my own clothes, something I never really thought I would like just be doing, but like fast fashion is terrible for the environment. So like, what if I just made my own clothes or never bought anything new? And solar punk clothes could look just as cool as steampunk or cyberpunk fashion, except it would be more practical. You know, what are some of the, the natural ways people can can make clothing? And it's like natural materials, a lot more colorful than what you see in uh, normal, like sort of cyberpunk aesthetics, a lot more full of life and like earthy, you know, sort of tone. So where it's like cyberpunk, you're thinking of like blacks and purples and blues and neons and that kind of thing. Uh, solar punk is like 
greens and and yellows and 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 grays and like browns it's really pretty it's really like earthy and natural uh feeling when you look at solar punk aesthetic we are living in a time when even going to the grocery store feels dystopian and i know for some people it helps to lean into that fear watching movies about pandemics or reading novels about post-apocalyptic landscapes I feel the opposite. I've been craving not just hopeful stories, but hopeful stories about the future. That's why Solar Punk is my sci-fi comfort food right now, and it's healthy comfort food. And what I like about Solar Punk is that it's not necessarily a utopia. At the very least, they just want to imagine a future where Solar Punk ideas have a fighting chance, where people can lead by example, even on a small scale where there's a lot of power in a hashtag. That is it for this week. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to Scott and Jay Knoll, Serena Ulibari, Adam Flynn, Keisha Howard, and Vanessa Bello. In the show notes, I have links to Dreamforge Magazine, Serena's anthology Glass and Gardens, Adam Flynn's Solar Punk Manifesto, and Keisha Howard's nonprofit organization, Sugar Gamers. I also have a slideshow of some of the artwork I discussed on the Imaginary Worlds Instagram page. Now, one of the established authors who has been retroactively deemed solar punk is Kim Stanley Robinson. Apparently, he's quite happy to learn that he had been a solar punk writer all along. And if you'd like to know more about his work, I interviewed him in a 2017 episode about a novel he wrote called New York 2140, which imagines how New Yorkers would adapt if their city was flooded like Venice. It's a very positive vision of people coming together and life going on. My assistant producer is Stephanie Billman. You can like the show on Facebook. I tweeted E. Malinsky and Imagine Worlds Pod. If you really like the show, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts or a shout out on social media. That always helps people discover the show. The best way to support Imaginary Worlds is to donate on Patreon. At different levels, you can get free Imaginary World stickers, mug, a t-shirt, and a link to a Dropbox account, which has the full-length interviews of every guest in every episode. You can learn more at imaginaryworldspodcast.org. $5,000. That's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on gas in a year. Five grand. That's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right. You can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back today. I use Upside every time I fill up, and I've already made around two, $300. You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get real cash back? If you like free money, download Upside. I'm saving the cash I earn from using Upside to help pay for a vacation later this year. Download the free Upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code GAME to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code GAME for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code GAME for a 25 cents per gallon bonus.